You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 28. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're talking to special guest, Andy White, and we're discussing the Roman sword that has been found on Oak Island. Is it really an ancient Roman sword, or is it maybe something a little more recent? We're going to discuss why Swordgate is important, what academics and archaeologists at large can do to fight back against other issues like Swordgate, and just in general, talk about the media. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology, but we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do. Dinosaurs. Well, hey everyone, and welcome to the show. Today we are discussing the Roman sword that has recently been found in Nova Scotia area, and with me I've got my co-host Ken Hi, and Sarah. a special How guest. Are you? Very good. And my, my special guest, Andy White. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ken. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Andy. And, and thanks so much for coming back. Andy did a wonderful podcast about uh, Giants, giants. Um, a few months ago, and it was just absolutely spectacular. And once Andy again, is a returning champion. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. He's been doing, doing God's work uh, about <laughs> this Roman sword thing that we're going to get into today. Right. You have been doing I, quite a bit of job. Be very rude and, and interrupt your introduction. Yes. Say that I know that the people listening to this cannot see me, but when you said Roman, I did air quotes with my fingers. And when you said you on Oak Island, I also did air quotes around that, too, because yes. I think either of those things has been demonstrated anywhere near uh, the level that it needs to be to be taken seriously. It's an extraordinarily <laughs> important point to make. Absolutely. That... I, I had nonverbal air quotes going when I said found. So, yes. But yeah, um, can we do a very brief history of Oak Island before we launch into the sword itself? Because I think it's interesting that Oak Island ties, it seems to tie into this whole Michigan. Michigan just seems to be a hot spot for weird artifacts and things, even into the modern day. And I know Ken and I have done, Ken and I have talked around the topic of the Michigan relics right. on more than one occasion. And I feel like this is something that continues into modern day. I mean, aren't the, a lot of the, the giants found up in that area too, Andy? Uh, there are definitely a, a few accounts from Michigan. I actually don't know there? that I've written about any of those directly, but you know, in terms of like contact from the Near East and the Mediterranean, like the whole copper mining thing. Yeah. And then some of the stuff, you know, tying to the Mormon and the inscriptions and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm not an expert on, but yeah, I mean, you know, Michigan has very high capita, you know, per capita of militia members, too. So there you go. You know, <laughs> I just think there's a lot of weird that comes out of Michigan. Yeah, there, I think there are other parts of the country right now who are vying for that, you know, the, the number one in terms of weirdness. So I don't even know if we could say there's one part of the country that has the most of kind of fringe archaeology or war archaeology. But Michigan certainly has um, it more than its portion. It does have, um, a, yeah. yeah. I would agree but, with you. Yeah. So Andy, can you tell us a little bit about Oak Island? 
Uh, I am not an Oak Island expert. I will tell you what I know. Uh, okay. This, this program, which seems to be generating a, a lot of interest, you know, I think it's a very popular show. I know there's there's a lot of, um, you know, Facebook groups online that talk about it. I have actually not watched it this season, but it, okay. it, it harkens back to this idea that there's something very deep uh, on this uh, inside this island in Nova Scotia. The legends supposedly start back in 1795 or something like that. Uh, I've read some places online where they say there's actually no real documentation of any of this stuff being written down before the mid 1800s, which would be consistent with kind of the um, you know recent era of of the gold boom and, and all that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, the program, to me, and again, not having watched it now uh, this season, though supposedly the sword is going to be on next week, so I will tune it. Um, <laughs> But it seems to be this kind of, you know, people come on and they present their theory about what is buried on Oak Island. And, it, and you've got everybody involved at this point from the Aztecs, pirates, the Masons, the Knights Templar. Apparently there's something about Jesus on there recently. You know, maybe Hitler's there. Who knows? <laughs> the problem, of course, is that there have been a lot of people digging there for a long time. And as far as I can tell, they have produced uh, a whole lot of nothing. So, you yeah. know, you tell me. I mean, I'm an archaeologist just like you guys are. You know, I want to see some kind of material evidence of something that I can analyze and, and try to explain and, and test. And, you know, you can make up any story you want, right? <laughs> but, you know, where's the beef in any of this? And so um, that's, that's my impression of it. And I am not an Oak Island scholar, but I know obviously that the Roman sword story is kind of uh, tangential to it. And, and part of it is the human component of, I think, people wanting to be on TV and wanted to make a name for themselves, and that's how these things kind of tie together, at least on, on one right. level. And then, you know, the, for a little bit of context, several months ago, I was contacted by uh, a guy, an independent production producer of, of shows for cable, and he named a couple of shows that he had been working on. And the, the interesting thing is he approached me as an archaeologist looking for ideas for shows, and the two words that came up again and again in the conversation were mystery and treasure. Uh -huh. He needed what he wanted were he, he needed he said the, the thing for cable now is they needed shows that were about um, somebody finding a mysterious treasure, treasures that had some in, intrinsic or inherent mystery. And so when you got an issue like Oak Island, which the the money pit, this supposed pit where there's something hidden and we don't know what it is so it's really mysterious but it's it's a spectacular treasure and people have have spent an enormous amount of 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 wealth of money trying to find this it's it's absolutely a perfect model for what per, cable tv producers explicitly want for yeah. their for their 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 series shows something that will and they don't want the mystery solved right away so this thing can can drag out <laughs> over a period yeah. of years so the oak island thing shouldn't surprise anybody and we'll probably see more of this stuff and as i know that out west there are all kinds of lost mines and lost gold treasures <laughs> hidden away and there are these legends and mysteries about them and we will probably see shows about those as well which come to the same Ken. lack of a result is they don't find it. You're, you're doing you're doing it wrong, man. These are, these are the things we need to keep to ourselves so that we can do our shows later on because well, that's how we're going to retire. There you go. I guess so. I guess so. Because I think that's what what Oak Island is all about. Now, for the the previous podcast that we we um, we've done that, that kind of leads into this one is we did talk. It was our, our number two podcast about um, 
uh, out-of-place artifacts, oo-parts. Oo so artifacts that are found geographically in the wrong place. Historians don't, don't believe that artifact belongs in that place or chronologically out of place or stratigraphically out of place. It's way too mm -hmm. old. So we talked, the first, the first one of our oop part, uh, the first part of our out of place artifact <laughs> podcast was about, we, we talked about the, what the spark plug that was found in like pre-Cambrian deposits. Obviously, yeah, the Coso artifact. The Coso artifact. Um, but but we've also talked. We had Brad Leppard talk about the newer Colby stones. What are mm -hmm. what are objects with Hebrew writing doing in a two thousand year old mound in Ohio? Out of place geographically, out of place stratigraphically or chronologically. We talked about the fact that in many cases those are just out and out fakes. Brad, I think, has shown conclusively, and as have others, that the newer Colby stones were fabricated in the middle of the nineteenth century. Were, were planted in an archaeological context in order to fool people. So it was intentional. And that's part of a, a long, ignoble history of doing Piltdown Man, the Cardiff Giant, the Michigan Relics. These are all in, intentionally fraudulent artifacts placed in the soil to fool people. But then we mm -hmm. also talked about genuine artifacts that are found out of place because the documentation is gone, somebody's lost them, somebody comes along and picks them up and is fascinated by the fact that they find Roman coins. And we mentioned the article in 1980, Current Anthropology, by um, Epstein, uh, enumerating about 40 of these finds in North America, primarily of Roman coins, and most of those in, in most of those cases, the coins are legit. They actually are ancient Roman coins. But in each case, he proved pretty much conclusively that they came to the New World in the 19th century, that, that these were part of an antiquities trade or a tourist trade. People went to Italy, bought Roman coins, brought them home. So mm -hmm. we use that as an example. Also, the, um, the Wayne May, who is the, the, the editor of Ancient American Magazine, who in this documentary about the Michigan relics showed this oil lamp that clearly was from that its origin, its origin should be someplace in the Middle East, but he found it in an estate sale in Virginia, West Virginia, and claimed therefore that somehow ancient Israelites came to West Virginia in antiquity and dropped this oil lamp. So right. that was a legitimate artifact, but clearly the context of finding it in an estate sale leaves a little bit to be desired in terms of archeological pedagogy. But that's a real artifact, it's a real object, and it's just simply that its documentation is no longer um, uh, connected to it, so people misinterpret what it means when it's found in it, geographically in a place where it shouldn't be found. And then, but then we also talked about artifacts in which there's no intentional, there's no intention of fraud, but there simply are objects that are replicas, intentionally made as replicas, explicitly made as replicas, that are then sold to tourists who then bring these home with them. If they, they may buy them in Egypt, they may buy them in Italy, they may buy them online. Um, and they are, they're cheap, they're relatively inexpensive, and they are intentionally, they, they, they are explicitly replicas. But then what happens when those replicas, there was no initial intent to defraud anybody, but those replicas, again, lose contact with their documentation, people forget about those things, and and then they end up being discovered, more air quotes, by somebody in Ohio or Nova Scotia or California. And they wonder, well, how in the hell did this thing get here? 
not knowing that in fact it's not a legitimate artifact. And we we talked the last time about the the student of mine who found a plastic he found a Clovis point while walking through the the woods behind this high school, brought it into me, and it turned out to be a plastic replica. He thought it was a genuine artifact. That was pretty easy because, you know, the Clovis people tended not to work so much in plastic. Yeah. They were more into, like, stone. But but that was an example in which, at least for a little bit of, for a short time, somebody was confused about what the source, you know, how did that get into his into the backyard of his high school? So, so Andy, this Roman sword, can can you put that Roman sword in one of those categories? Is it an out now fraud? Is it a genuine artifact that has you know lost its documentation, so we don't know what it is? Is it a replica, or is it a genuine artifact, in fact found in situ somewhere in Nova Scotia, and proves that we've got to go back and you know rewrite the his, the history books? Also, tell us about your awesome new sword. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, I think. You know, and, and this is just a guess because I only have the information that I've been given and I have been able to look online and, and dig up myself and others have helped me with. But I think you've probably got a combination of all three of those things that you just okay. mentioned. Uh -huh. I think the story behind where the sword, how, how it was found, discovered, um, smells like baloney to me. What's, uh, what, I, what specifically is the claim? Uh, the claim what? is that decades ago it was dredged up, scalloping somewhere off of Nova Scotia in the vicinity of the shipwreck that Pulitzer claims is a Roman shipwreck. Okay. Um, it doesn't look what? like something that's been underwater for, you know, 1500 years to me. What have they, what have they got to back that claim that it's a Roman shipwreck up? Is it, that, does no. it look like a Roman ship? Well, I, I don't, you know, actually, I feel like I saw some things online from him a long time ago about why they thought it was a Roman shipwreck. There's some piles of rock, you know, maybe, maybe there are a lot of shipwrecks around there. Maybe there are ballast stones, whatever. I don't know whether it was the shape or the size or, or what, but he says they've got a sonar scan and it's beyond a shadow of a doubt it's a Roman shipwreck, even though they've not been allowed to look at it. So very okay, they not allowed to look at it. All right. Whatever. So I, you know, I put that aside. So the reason I have concentrated on the sword, and I'll circle back around to your question, is because the sword is held up as the smoking gun, quotes, air quotes again, artifact, uh, that, that proves the theory. Right. So my understanding of smoking gun is in a court case, if you have a smoking gun. The rest of the stuff doesn't really matter. Right. right. So you've got a smoking gun, the fingerprints, you know, the DNA, the motive, whatever. You got a guy standing there with a smoking gun. So if he's going to put this sword up as the smoking gun, then that's what I'm going to zero on. That's the best piece of evidence to show that there was a, a Roman legion that crashed in Canada and, you know, whatever the hell else is supposed to happen, happened, whatever. Right. So the story behind the sword, the, the discovery story is that it was given to, I don't know whether it was the, the Oak Island, uh, the Lagina brothers who were doing the show, or the, the production company, Prometheus Entertainment, or whatever, but Pulitzer was there, I suppose. He's claiming ownership of the photos that he's told me I can't use because he owns the copyright. Um, somebody came up with this sword and said, yeah, this is the story. We found that it was passed on from you know, one relative to another, it changed hands like three or four times as people died. It was found in the ocean decades ago out in this area. So, so it wasn't even found in the shipwreck. That's right. That's what, that's what we know. That's what we've been told. So that's, okay. that's the story. So not great start there. So we don't have no. a really, really firm chain of evidence linking no. a sword found in a shipwreck to the sword that's being shown now as a Roman sword. Right. So there's, there's zero 
you know, confidence in that part of the story from my perspective. Mm -hmm. But then you can look at the intrinsic qualities of the artifact itself, right? So even if you throw out the convenience story, you can ask, is this a legitimate Roman artifact? Now, I'm not a an edged weapons expert. I don't know anything about this stuff. I, I don't do Roman archaeology, but I looked at the thing and I was like, well, that looks, you know, it looks like it's a copper alloy, right? It's got patina on it, like it's bronze or brass, okay? Uh, there's a figure on the hilt. doesn't really look like any sword I've ever seen. Once I started looking, you know, it very quickly snowballed within a, a couple of days, like several other of these swords with this exact same Hercules figure on the hilt surfaced in private collections on Italian eBay. A uh, guy just bought one from a, an estate sale in California for 25 bucks, and that one's actually being FedExed to me. It's probably like somewhere on I-70. It's on its way. It's going <laughs> to like, look at it first. Nice. Um, and then you can buy a modern reproduction in cast iron uh, on Amazon.com for uh, 28 bucks. And for- well, it's, a very, it's a very cheap antique. Uh, antique. Right. So, but they ancient artifact, I guess I should say. I, I think all of these things kind of um, uh, feed into trying to understand the story of like where this Nova Scotia sword actually came from, what it is, you know, and and being that we have not been given the the supposed XRF data that he has collected on the, the metallic composition of it. Mm-hmm. And being that there is no good provenience story, like this is all we have to go on. You know, and the fact that there are many of these things floating around out there um, should give anyone pause, I think, uh, as to believing that this is an authentic Roman artifact based on an assertion and no other evidence. And so that's where it kind of took off for me because, you know, my BS detector, I think, is pretty finely honed at this point. Mm-hmm. I've been in theology for a while and I've been you know, actively working with my blog and kind of trying to address pseudo-archaeology and do my civic duty online for over a year now. And it just, you know, the, my BS detector went off the charts. <laughs> like, this, this is nonsense. Um, and if it's not, you know, it should, it should hold up to scrutiny. And, you know, I would leave that up to uh, anybody who looks into this, this seriously to determine for themselves whether this artifact has so far held up to scrutiny or whether it's going to be able to. And my guess is that it is not. It is going to be on the garbage heap of a lot of this other stuff that is, you know, has a fraudulent backstory. Somebody was intending to deceive somebody, probably, is my guess. I don't think it's a Roman artifact. And therefore, it doesn't really matter where it is in the world because it's not telling you anything about ancient Rome. Uh, okay, Andy, can you tell us, I was I was on your blog because, you, like I said, you mentioned you've been doing a lot of work on this and you really have. Um, but you came up with uh, three falsifiable ideas. Hypotheses, right? Yeah, hypotheses. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it is not a artifact at all. Uh, but can you briefly go over your three points and uh, kind of tell us how they should be falsified if this artifact was real? Sure. So, um you know, we're all archaeologists here, right? And probably a lot of people listening to this are archaeologists. So the way we go about trying to understand the past is you come up with a general idea or an explanation, and then you try to find a way to prove yourself wrong, right? You try to find an expectation that if, if my idea is right, then this should be true. And if it's not true, I should be able to prove it wrong. So based right. on everything that I have looked at online, things that other people have sent me and thinking about this and, you know, searching through images my best guess is that uh, these swords, these brass, bronze, copper alloy swords, are probably souvenir swords from the 1800s. Maybe they were produced for Europeans going on the, the grand tour where you know wealthy people would go down to the Mediterranean 
Rome, Greece, to learn about the world. They would take home a lot of souvenirs with them. You know, maybe that's where it comes from. Okay, that's that's my idea. And uh, and in, in this case, these were not made intentionally to hoax anybody. Or, no. and not it's, Listen, you want a, a sword that looks like an original Roman sword? You can buy this. It's very inexpensive. Right. So that that's that's the idea, right? So so that would be like the first generation of sword. I don't think there is a an authentic Roman original sword that looks anything like that. If there is, uh, show it to me. You know, that's that's expectation number one, right? If there's an authentic Roman sword in a museum in Naples somewhere, how come we haven't seen a picture of it yet? Yeah. Me and I know a lot of other people who have been emailing me have been looking for this thing. We have looked through uh, old, you know, books that are available on Google Scholar that have the the contents of the Naples Museum, you know, illustrated from 1844 and so on and so forth. Um, people have emailed the Naples Museum. As far as I know, no one has gotten a response. There, there is no positive evidence that there exists an authentic Roman sword of this design, period. Well, and the description of the icon on the sword is very suspect to me because I, I went to Ancient Origins, the website there, who I think are the big supporters of this. Um, the the story they've created around the icon, you know, it's odd. It's obviously a Hercules reference because of the whole loincloth and all that stuff. And you point that out in your description of it. But the story as they continue to go is like he's obviously holding up something that symbolizes the destroyed Norse tree of wisdom or something like that. And like he's destroying a temple around him. So it must mean that this was a sword meant to protect Roman gladiators as they went out in the world and explored and I'm like Roman gladiators are not explorers and so why would they have swords to protect them but it's just like they have this very elaborate story based on this icon and it doesn't look anything like that to me also I don't know why they would have had any interactions with the storyline that they have had interactions with I the, the figure is clearly Hercules, you know, yeah. he's, got, he's got his lion skin on the first labor of Hercules. And like, I'm learning all about this stuff because like, I don't know anything about Hercules. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's clearly Hercules. a Hercules figure. <laughs> so, but you know, what he's doing is is anyone's guess. Right, so he had to go slay the lion, the Nemean lion or whatever it was. That was the first labor. And then he wore his skin as armor. It was so hard to kill the lion because the lion had uh, tough skin, I guess. And then right. he puts the lion skin on him. So on the, on the best preserved example of the sword, which is the California sword, which again is on its way to me. Hopefully it will be here tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you can really see, you can see the paws of the lion skin, both on its knees and coming mm -hmm. over its shoulders. And, you know, if you Google Hercules lion skin, you get all kinds of images from Renaissance art and whatever. Hercules wearing his lion skin. And, you get, and it was popular in Rome. So that's okay, right? Yeah. Uh, he's probably holding a club over his head. Hercules used a club a lot. You can find all kinds of Roman statuary with Hercules holding a club, used it to, you know, beat up on the lion or whatever else. There are other animals at his feet. There's this weird kind of floral thing between his legs that uh, it has it's kind of got nine sinuous parts on it. Maybe that represents the nine-headed hydra. Hell, I don't know. You know, I don't do this <laughs> stuff. I don't know. Um, but it's definitely supposed to be Hercules, and it's like a Roman-looking short sword. Fine, good. But yeah, there's no there's no reason to think that um, the most parsimonious explanation is not that it was a souvenir created for the tourist trade, unless you can show me a Roman original. Right. And nobody has produced that yet. That's easily, that's expectation number one. Falsify my hypothesis. Right. Show me the original. Because I say there, there, there isn't one, right? Prove me wrong, number one. Right. Number okay, what's number two? Number two is that uh, I think all these swords date post-date the 1700s. You know, I think they're all modern creation. 
Um, in order to prove that wrong, all you have to do is give me some kind of context for any sword that shows that it is of Roman origin or that it predates the 1700s. You know, maybe they're from the 1500s. I don't know. You could prove my theory wrong then, and, and I would have to revise it. Right. All of these swords kind of floating around that they were all, and once you look at them, you will understand they were all cast either as copies of each other or from the exact same mold. They are not a right. design. They are the same damn thing over and over again. It's the same thing. So I think they were all produced at the same time, and I think that that was a late time of, of manufacture. So you would need some kind of archaeological context or some way to date them to prove that wrong, right? Number Yeah. Is that, Do we have a good way to date metal artifacts? Well, you need it. I think you need a context. I mean, th this thing was supposedly excavated from Pompeii. So where, you know, A, where is the sword? And B, where's the excavation data? You know, even if it's from the 1800s when they were excavating Pompeii, like, show me the, show me somebody's notes or report or something that this thing came out of a Roman context, you know. I, I, but, and we, we don't have a way to just date the swords, like to just like, uh, there's no equivalent of a c14 thing for metal well then you actually for iron a context date you would need to have it in a in a yeah. closet that dates to the roman period or right or, right right but we can't test the actual physical metal no, itself there, there and have, get a date. yeah that's been, what i'm trying to say there having applications of carbon dating on iron because carbon gets impregnated in steel and uh but those are those are extremely rare and what you're what you're dating there is the carbon that ends up in the carbon steel yeah and but these swords are supposedly Made out of bronze? Copper, yeah. bronze? Copper or bronze? They're probably brass if they're 1800 swords, okay. but I think right. they're going to come back to be. But they're, they're supposed to not, they're supposed to be something else. Either way, we can't just date the physical metal itself, so that, that's not a way to falsify your expectation. No, I think that you would need to have, like, some archaeological context. Why do we think... Right, no, no, and that would be the perfect thing. Like Naples notes or pictures or, you know, something. Right, I mean, there, there could be a sword in a desk somewhere that somebody thought was genuine, but like without any context, how do you know? Right. right, exactly. So number three is that because I think all these swords were probably made at the same time, and I think it was recent, but they should all be of a, a similar metal composition. I think they were all produced by a, the same kind of group of people or at the same time in the same region for the tourist trade, so I expect them all to have the same metallurgical properties. I expect that they're all going to be brass rather than bronze, meaning they're going to have a high zinc content. Mm -hmm. uh, they're probably going to have other trace elements in them. Uh, the Romans did make uh, brass, and I, you know, I'm starting to learn more about this and, and look into how one would distinguish Roman brass from brass from the 1800s. Uh, that's something I'm working on, so I'm learning a lot. <laughs> My plan for the California sword is to take it and either to do an XRF or to... Um, take a little sliver of it and put it in the scanning electron microscope and figure out the elemental composition. Mm -hmm. It's the best preserved of the swords. It has the most detail. Uh, so unless there is an ancient Roman sword somewhere that that could have been copied from that has more detail than that, you know, if that's a recent brass sword from the 1800s, then I think we've got a pretty good case that they're, you know, even if I can't look at the rest of them, um, you should be highly suspicious uh, that all these other, which are actually worse copies and preserve less detail. So how could they have come from? Um, how, how could they be older? Right. You, you couldn't have made a more recent reproduction sword with more detail than the original. Right. 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 Well, unless you show me the detailed original, uh, I think we got case closed uh, at that point. 
So can someone explain what XRF uh, is for the audience? Because not everybody who listens to this is an archaeologist. Ken, you want to take that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I know. It's X-ray fluorescence, which right. yeah. um, you basically shoot an X-ray at the thing and uh, the readings that it gets back tell you um, the, the composition kind of, makeup, of material yeah. in terms of the elements. Right. right. And it can give you very minute readings on it um, so that your trace elements that you were talking about earlier, right. so it, we'd be able to pick those up. Percent off. copper, percent zinc, percent lead, percent arsenic. Right. And so different kinds of metalworking, you know, have different kinds of signatures. Uh, now, how um, mutually exclusive those are and how much overlap there is is something that I'm still learning about. Because, again, like most of the time, I work with, you know, hunter-gatherers who are doing chip stones. So I don't know a lot about this stuff. But you know what? To To... Try to evaluate this artifact that's going to rewrite history. I'm going to learn something about it, and I'm going to use right. evidence-based approach to to try to come to a conclusion. So there you go. There there are a number of techniques that archaeologists uh, apply to determine the trace element composition of raw materials. I'm familiar with neutron activation analysis, which I was working on a project even when I was an undergraduate for one of my professors, uh, looking at turqu turquoise in the Southwest and in Mexico. Um, so X, X, um, XRF and uh, a number of other techniques are, are used to get very, very precise measurements of percentages of, of, of um, the, the raw materials, the trace elements, impurities. And if, as Andy said, if the signature of a particular source or a particular kind of, of, of metallurgy, if it's precise, it can be distinguished from other sources. So yeah. you can't with obsidian, you can trace obsidian sources to specific volcanoes because it's very consistent that the trace elements in that volcano differ from a volcano that's 20 miles away. The question here is when we look at elemental composition of, uh, of the, uh, an end product of metallurgy, it very well may be that specific times and specific places, the percentages are unique or diagnostic to that place. And so if, if the swords found in California has exactly the same composition as the one in Nova Scotia, as the one in Florida, and it doesn't look, and there's no source in ancient Rome where you can say, oh yeah, these have the same percentages as this, this source in Rome, then you've got pretty damning evidence that no, they didn't come from Rome, they came from somewhere else, or they didn't come from Rome 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. It's my understanding, hypothetically, you could nail something like something as specific as the actual metallurgy, where it's a where you're mixing different elements together to create a better metal. Right. Right. Because there's basically a recipe. You can hypothetically trace it back to the smithery. If you knew what the recipes were that were being used in the area. Right. Um, so hypothetically, you may have the ability to trace these swords all the way back to the manufacturer themselves just based on the metal. Yeah. But I mean, that that's a complete hypothetical. No, I think that, and that's going to be fun because I mean, I think there are there are kind of two tracks here. You know, one is is getting the actual data from the swords. It's. Self. I'm like, I would love to have a look at the original sword. I've emailed uh, Prometheus Entertainment, who does the Oak Island Trail. I'm not even sure who owns that sword right now. I've gotten no response because uh, who knows. But uh, that that's what you really need, number one. Um, but I, I can get data from other swords, you know, the California sword. And I'm 
working on some other ones. I'll just leave it at that. But sure. And then number two, you know, you need to know what those data mean. So there is a lot of literature out there already about uh, Roman metalwork, how they made brass. Uh, it was a different technique that they were using than was used later on in the 17 and 1800s. Um, zinc content has a lot to do with it. My understanding is, uh, and again, this is somebody who doesn't do this stuff normally, but I've just been kind of browsing, is that a, a really high zinc content, like 40% zinc, 60% copper, is modern brass all the way. Um, if you get something that's up in the 30s, you're probably looking at modern brass. If you get something that's lower, it might have been the way, um, you know, the Romans were doing it where they were kind of combining uh, a bunch of ores in without necessarily refining it in the same way to get uh, really high zinc content. Uh, but they were also making relatively low zinc brasses in um, the 1800s also. So I think that there are kind of a number of balls to juggle in the air here, and it's going to be really fun, you know, once I see what the California sword is made of to try to figure out what I can actually say about it with any kind of certainty. And then okay, so we're going to go to break real quick. And when we come back, I want to talk more about the California sword because we're kind of getting into it a little bit. So uh, when we get back, we're going to continue talking about the California sword with Andy White. Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks. He destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. And we are back with Andy White talking about the Roman sword that was found on Oak Island recently. And Andy, can you, you've mentioned the sword that's coming to you from California. Can you tell us why you're so excited about this particular sword? No, I, I think, you know, it was just a, it was a couple days into Swordgate, what I call Swordgate. I do like the Swordgate. Please look for hashtag Swordgate hashtag because sword. it's hilarious. That's right. Um, it was just a couple days into that where I, I believe I was under threat of lawsuit and other things were happening. I got an email out of the blue and this, you know, this guy says, uh, hey, I, I just bought this in an estate sale a little bit ago and it kind of looks like the sword. And I clicked on the picture and it's the exact same. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and it's the best one. Like you can see, you know, the hairs in Hercules beard. You can see the grain on the club. You can see details in it that have been rubbed off. All of the other ones, which is really interesting, uh, both for what it tells you about what's a reproduction and what's an original, and what it might tell you about like what the iconography is supposed to be, you know? So I know like the sword that I bought from Amazon, this modern cast iron reproduction has all kinds of grinder marks on it. It's really crude. So I'm really looking forward to seeing one that might be a more pristine example of what I think was a 1800s tourist sword and, and having a really good look at it and how it was made uh, what's on there. And then I'll be able to get, uh, elemental composition data. You know, the owner wants to run anonymous. So I'm on that. He's been really cooperative and we've had a really nice cordial email exchange. And as long as you know what the SEM scanning electron microscope needs is a really small piece, which I think it will be like, maybe just like a tiny little shaving, you know, he's all right with me taking a chunk off of his sword and, uh, getting some really good clean data on what kind of metal is in it. That's really awesome. Yeah, it is. And so it's great. So he's FedExing it to me, and um, it's been outstanding. I mean, one of the best things about Swordgate for me has been 
it really feels like a kind of ground up effort. You know, my BS detector went off along with a lot of other people out there on the internet and they, they have sent me emails and done a lot of work as far as contacting antique dealers and watching videos and searching online for things. And, you know, I've almost just kind of been a filter for putting that back out there and, and being kind of a central place for that. And it's been really rewarding. Um, to kind of be able to play that role because I think a lot of us who are archaeologists, like we see these nonsense stories and it's like, you know, you want to do something about it. And this is one that gained enough traction um, that a lot of other people in the world also like wanted to be a part of it. And I think that's pretty cool, really. No, that is amazing, actually. Yeah. It, it's An important point to make here is that on a couple of websites that I was looking at the end of 2015, this story was listed as one of the the really important stories in uh, in terms of of re having to rewrite history. Yeah, that, good one. You know that was the yeah, in 2015, history. and and again in all of those summaries they were talking about the people involved in in discovering and analyzing the sword were historians or researchers or scientists. Um, without them, without in these summary articles, without any checking of well who exactly is behind the sword. Are they really historians? Are they are they professional researchers or scientists? So it's important. And I'm not seeing a lot of names. I'm seeing a lot of experts say, but I'm not seeing a lot of names except for one. Yeah, can I can I get on my soapbox here for for please six seconds? No, we don't do soapboxes on this show. All right, I have a bunch of blocks that my kids play with. Can I stand on one of those? You you can stand on blocks. We can do that. I got a glass of wine too, just so you know, because we're talking. <laughs> Perfect. The media channels that this has gone through, the journalists that have put their name on this story and reprinted it or, you know, massaged it around a little bit and, and tagged it as their own, are have been totally asleep at the wheel on this one. Like you said, Ken, there has been so little critical thought going into, like, who these people are and, you know, calling them historians and archaeologists and, right. and so on and so forth and just kind of not ever asking the appropriate uh journalistic questions about um you know whether like what's behind this story like what's going on here and just kind of accepting it and getting it spoon fed to them and then spoon feeding it back to everybody right. else. and mm -hmm. look at these stories that came out in the early days of Sorgate, and they have tens of thousands of views and shares whatever how do you compete with that you know i mean it was it's just only been for the last few days where uh some reporters have started adding updates to their stories, uh, you know, with links to my blog and to other sources, like kind of questioning this. I actually talked to a reporter from Nova Scotia. First time a reporter contacted me today, I talked to him. <laughs> He's going to look into some aspects of the story. And I said, uh -huh. go for it, please. You know, I have a journalism degree. Like, I understand what it is to try to go out and get the story and, like, what the responsibility is on, on the part of a journalist to not just repeat verbatim what they have been told, but to ask a question and try to understand what is going on. And so far, I have been completely unimpressed with what I have seen in the media about this. And that's why I think this is kind of a different kind of thing that we're seeing here. It's kind of a battle in a way, you know? like how do you compete with the Daily Mail coming out with a story, you know, that uh, is going to reach hundreds of thousands of uh, readers? You know, how, how do you do that? Like, how do you get your voice raised to the level that that people will will be able to to hear it you know people who are looking for something else because the reporters mm -hmm. certainly have not been so far for the most part and it's been really pretty discouraging 
uh, in a lot of ways. They, they've given these guys a free pass, and it's nonsense. Well, it, it, uh, I know it's frustrating. Go ahead, Ken. I was going to say, it reminds me of the Winston Churchill quote that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Oh, true story. And that's, you know, that's that that seems to be what's going on. I mean, when I when I open up my news feed from Yahoo Science, and this is the lead article that, oh, this is yeah. this is the most one of the most important archaeological discoveries of 2015 was proof that the Romans made it to the New World before Columbus and before the Norse. And you sit there scratching your head. You go, what what are you where? Where is the beef? Where is the evidence behind this? That leads me to a question, Andy. I mean, you are you're you're a, a prehistorian, right? You, you, you do archaeology here in North America. You heard this story. You are exhibiting the kinds of due diligence that any rational person would apply to this story. The people who are the Pulitzer and those guys, what what research have they actually done? Have they consulted specialists in Roman um, swords? Have they tried to track down an actual provenience for this thing? Have they done any elemental analysis? Where's where are where's the article that we all all of us skeptics can read and and scratch our heads and say, oh gee, maybe they've got something. What is there besides? Look at this. We've got a sword. It's Roman. Okay. You know. So I know it's frustrating, but I think the best way to combat this is what we're doing and just keep chipping away at it. Like Andy said, people are starting to notice. Yeah. But, and they're starting to ask questions. My, and... my question isn't even rhetorical. Andy, is where, where, where is where have these guys, other than simply saying we've got this, it's Roman, it's really important. What else is there? Okay, so they have promised a quote unquote white paper. It's supposed to come out. Uh, I don't know what the date is now. It's supposed to be January or first quarter of 2016. Okay. It's going to lay out all the evidence. So we are all, I can write a white paper. As you can imagine with bated breath, see this white paper. Now, Pulitzer says he has done a, an XRF analysis. Now, what that means, I do not know. You know, you point a gizmo at it, and you pull the trigger, and you write down what it says. Um, fine. Let's see what you did. Like, let's see the methods. Let's see the right, results. Of course. So I can compare it. So I, I know. The other people who have signed on to this are the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society, which, Ken, you are probably familiar with that organization. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yes. Not so, the most reliable. I, if if <laughs> yes. I were to put a gloss on it, which, you know, I, again, I am drinking a glass of wine, so I will. Um, they have never met uh, an out-of-place artifact that they didn't like, right? Yeah. There are there are several advocates in that group still of Burroughs Cave, for crying out loud, which if, sure. if you want to sign on to that one, go for it, you know? Uh, so those are the supposed experts. And I've had many people ask me, you know, well, these people are in universities. Like, who are these people? And so, like, I think I'm going to write a piece. Like, who is the AAPS? Like, so, well, who are we talking about here? Because, yeah, some of them are associated with universities. And they're not archaeologists, but they have um, kind of adopted this, you know, diffusionist or die paradigm. And they are moving forward with it. And they are backing the sword 100%. And so they can, they can hang themselves with the sword just as well as Pulitzer can. And I really think that's probably what's going to happen. If anybody is ending up paying attention, you know, by the time Swordgate comes to a bitter end, because the bitter end is going to be that the thing is in the garbage can. Uh, that's my opinion. So. Okay. So can we talk about, um, can we talk about the guy whose, whose name is all over this? The Jay Holzer. Pulitzer. I, um, it, it's pretty interesting. You know, in most cases when scientists or historians 
are arguing a point, and even if it's a very contentious and very controversial, it's extraordinarily rare for one person to threaten to sue another person based on an opinion. Yeah. Um, and th and that I mean that kind of it shows the the the, the level of or the quality of the discourse that's going on here. If you can't simply say, "Hey, listen, I think you're wrong. I think that 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 your hypothesis has not been supported by data," and then to have somebody turn around and say, "That's going to I'm going to initiate legal action," that's 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 really out of kind of the the norm or the standards of scientific discourse, which is what this should be all about. This shouldn't be about. It's not about personalities, and it's not about cherished beliefs. It's about you say this artifact represents something. Let's we we are skeptical. Show us evidence that shouldn't incur even the the threat of legal action, and yet it right. has. So uh, I don't think he has any. Uh, I don't think he has a leg to stand on there, though. I mean, I've been threatened to be. People have threatened to sue me too, and it's like it's a blog, man. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. So to be clear, the the legal threats were around two issues. It weren't that it, they, they weren't, they didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was saying that I had problems with the sword. I went right. about the sword. Um, at a meta level, they, I think they probably did. But what they were based on was, hey, you can't use that image of the sword because that's mine. It's copyrighted. Uh, and the other one was, hey, you wrote a blog post three months ago and some people put libelous comments on it and I want you to take the whole thing down. Well, you have no control over the comments. I know. So I went back and forth with him a little bit. And then I decided, you know what? It's the holidays. Like, I got my parents coming. Like, right. Christmas. <laughs> so I took the whole thing down. And then after the holidays, I left the comments off. Because sometimes they were calling him things that I shouldn't say. Or else I will attempt to be to try to sue me again. Right. Uh, I left the comments off. But I put the blog post back up. Because it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. You know, he, in fact, himself had commented on it. Months ago, had no problem with it. It was only when Swordgate started, all of a sudden it became a big issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so fine. So I took down all that stuff because I feel like the argument is going to be one based on evidence. It's not going to be one based on name calling. Like, I'm not in the second grade anymore either. You know, I can, if people aren't being civil and aren't being rational, I don't necessarily want that on my blog. So that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Point gotcha. You're allowed to moderate the comments on your blog. That, that's your prerogative. You know, so no. I, I, to me, it, it came across as, as, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you're you're putting heat on me and I don't appreciate it, so what can I do to put some heat on you? And that's what it felt like. That does not deter me from continuing to try to ask the questions because I think as a, a responsible uh, archaeologist and a, a public academic that that's what we are supposed to do. And as a normal course of science is to be skeptical and to try to prove things wrong and to make sure that the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. And to like circle back around again, you know, these other swords started materializing out of the ether within 24 or 48 hours of the original uh, blog posts I started doing this. Um, the fact that he was so taken aback by those swords being out there, he had no idea means that they didn't do any of that basic necessary work to try to figure out what this sword actually was. Right. And if I were in his position, I probably would have been kind of frightened by that too, you know, because it, it started coming crashing down, I think, pretty quickly. So um, 
what are you going to do? You know, happy holidays. So I took the blog. <laughs> I got rid of the quote unquote copyrighted images and moved on. And, and, you know, the story doesn't really change. Like it's still, the answer is still out there and it's still going to be found. And this other stuff can be um, pushed aside as kind of a nuisance. So that's my position. Well, that's the part of this that really, really confuses me because, you know, they're, they're posing themselves as an academic group, posing themselves as scientists and academics. You know, they're, they're even going as far as to say they're going to write a white paper, which is like the first step before an actual scholarly paper is published and put into a journal. My thing is, is at some point they're going to have to face the rest of the academic community on equal footing, you know, they're going to have to come out of their shell eventually. And I do not understand why they think they're going to be able to survive once they come to the, the, the academic public with this, because there is nothing here to even remotely suggest that this is anything other than a willful fraud. And I do not see the academic community tolerating it. I mean, they're already not online, and this hasn't even gone anywhere beyond. But the problem is, as you know, it's all on television. Yeah. And the normal person isn't going to see the 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 shark fest that's going to come out of this. All they're seeing is, what is this, on History Channel, this television show? Mm -hmm. All they're seeing is a show on History Network. All they're seeing are these half-assed uh, half articles that are going across their media feeds and on Facebook. I mean... They're, it's all over the fucking place. And nobody sees the academics going, no, stop. You know, so the average Joe's going to think this is a real thing. And that's what they're going to be able to fall back on. And I, I think that's what they're, they're banking on, actually. I, I don't think their audience is an academic audience. No, but eventually they're going to have to come up against that. I think that's the pseudo in pseudo archaeology. Like they are, they are trying to present it as if this is a valid yes. scientific thing, and in a lot of ways, the media is helping them with that. Yes, you know, the Boston Standard, which is the, I have no idea what the circulation of the actual newspaper is, but you know, online, this is where the story originally came out. It's some newspaper in England. It's not Boston, Massachusetts. It's in England somewhere. But on the, you know, in the age of the internet, like it doesn't matter. You know, like the Boston right. web cage can be accessed a million times just as easily as, you know, anything. So the, it, 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 it's a different kind of battlefield, I think. And I think that the war is being fought um, in a lot of different ways. And I think academics need to kind of wake up to that a little bit, you know. And uh, yeah. I'm going to get some flack, but in one of the posts I, I wrote about why I think Swordgate is important, and I was just kind of spewing forth at that point. But I think a lot of people... Um, you know, are, are kind of fixated on, on some of these kind of old uh, things that, you know, are, are frauds that are proven to be frauds in the past. And meanwhile, this new battlefield is kind of emerging. And I see it every day on Facebook and other kinds of social media things about the, the war of, of misinformation and trying to take control of interpretations of the human past that, you know, and putting forth things that are completely ridiculous. And there is no real uh, counter voice to those. And I really think we need to start thinking about how to develop one, you know, and, and if every uh, professional archeologist would just, you know, once every three months, write <laughs> something about something and put it out there, you know, and once you write a blog post, you know, as you guys know, like it's out there forever, 
Oh, yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it can be accessed and certain it'll come up in searches and it can be indexed. And that's a source of information. And like, that's not, you know, trivial in this day and age because of the way I think the dynamic that goes on with, um, you know, kind of the volume and, and the way these ideas become amplified. And, and we on our side, uh, who are people who are trying to find credible and plausible explanations of things are not doing a great job of presenting that counter argument at this point. That is my opinion. Yeah. No, and that's a complaint I've had for a very, very long time is we are not doing ourselves any favors. Um, especially people on like the, the high academic end of it, because I think there's just a natural, there's just a natural uh, habit to, hide things and that's that's mostly the protection thing like you don't want to tell people where sites are because you don't want them to get pot hunted you don't want to tell people what you've got because you don't want it to get stolen and we're very cautious as a field because we don't want to go out there with something the 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 quick release of the sword it was my first red flag i was like there's no way this is real you, you don't find something then turn around and immediately start talking about it it just doesn't happen you spend like three years researching it before you even tentatively say you might have something but i think that actually hurts us when it comes to the public because the public wants to know what's going on right now mm -hmm. yeah. and they want people to say you know what is this i want to know what this is what are you doing i mean that's the number one question you get when you're doing like a, a dig or something people come by and after they ask if you found dinosaurs, gold, or Hoffa, they ask, well, what are you doing? You know, and they, they're curious. They want to know. And they have a right to know to a degree. I mean, there's no reason not to tell them what you're doing. But there's there's got to be a happy medium, someplace in between where we can still protect heritage, but yet make that heritage accessible to the average person so that they can know the difference between a fake Roman sword that's not even associated with whatever it is they're looking for on Oak Island and an actual artifact that does have a historical significance and does have a historical impact. One of the, one of the real challenges is that, is that unfortunately our skepticism sometimes is used, it feeds the narrative that there's this popular archeology span out there and that we here in academia, in the hallowed halls of academia up at our ivory towers are trying to control it and keep people from knowing the truth. Yeah. So I I have been accused by folks who talk, who saw me on some you know documentary on cable who not just they, they're not just disagreeing with my skepticism. They don't believe my skepticism. They think I am intentionally hiding the truth because there's some nefarious um, uh, you know, uh, policy that we have in archaeology to keep the truth from people out there. Uh, and and unfortunately, we 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 it, some people believe we are feeding the na that narrative, and we have to fight against that. Obviously, I mean, there's always going to be people, and I call them true believers. And there's always going to be people out there that it does not matter what you say, you're not going to sway them. They don't even want to have an argument with you; they just want to tell you how you're wrong. That's how that conversation right. has to go. You can't reach those people. But there's for every one of those people, there's five other people standing around listening to the argument and they don't know. Right. They don't know which is the right side to, to go to. They don't know the difference between a fact and an opinion. 
And those are the people that we have to reach out to. And like I said, we're not doing ourselves any favors by hoarding everything. We got to get it out there and we need to get better at, and I, I think the three of us here are probably a little bit better at communicating with the public than maybe the average person. But I really feel like there should be classes taught at the undergrad and the graduate level that teach you how to talk to people and how to present your research to people, not just conferences, but like people. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Andy's got it exactly right. And what's nice is there, I think it's a growing number of people. I've been doing this long enough that, that, that there's a growing number of people in archaeology, people who are academic, people with PhDs, people who teach at universities, who are recognizing this, this incredibly important, significant obligation that we have to not just to respond to things, but to be proactive. Um, Brad right. Lepper is a wonderful example of that with his his blog, um, talking about that, that. You know, generally speaking, that his blog posts are about really interesting um, uh, questions about an archaeology, particularly here in North America. But that every once in a while, he responds directly to claims um, about things that are not in the mainstream. Uh, Brad does that. I know that Jeb Card does that. Jason Calavito, who is not um, an academically trained archaeologist, but his um, his blog is a wonderful place to find this brilliant, yeah, you know, detailed discussions and deconstructions of things like sword gates and giant sword gate and giants, but also America unearthed and um, and ancient aliens. And so the, the and that, my blog that exactly, but that and <laughs> hell, this podcast. So I think there is. I don't know that I'm going to call it a groundswell. Uh, because we all get blowback, I'm sure you do, Andy, from from uh, colleagues who say, "Well, you know, you're just drawing attention to that stuff, and that's not real archaeology. You should be doing real archaeology." But I think that that I've seen it more and more that people are are taking um, kind of the ownership of these issues and saying, "Listen, we we are not. We should not be an elitist discipline where we're only talking to one another." And publishing right. articles where maybe 50 other people in the United States are going to be interested and understand what you're talking about and recognize that so many of us, especially those of us who teach at public universities, we are able to do archaeology because the, the great mass of people out there on some level understand that's an important thing to teach and we want to know about it. Well, we, we better well talk to those people and not keep this as a, you know, it, it's it's a... It's a private club, and there we don't. We, there shouldn't be two archaeologies: popular archaeology and the archaeology in the right. academy. That right. we should be active, much more active. And Andy is a great example of that. So is Jeb Card. So is Brad Lepper, and a bunch of other people whose names I'm I'm forgetting right now, who are making that concerted effort, recognizing, hey, what we do is really important, and when people misuse that or misinterpret it or misrepresent it. It's our responsibility to respond and to also to be proactive. Um, I, that's one of the great things I think about Andy's blog on Swordgate is it's not just a deconstruction of this one artifact. It's a case study on how archaeologists should analyze just about any claim. Um, yes. Presenting alternate, uh, uh, a series of, of different competing hypotheses and attempting to disprove them. And then only when you've got one left standing and you're not able to disprove it, 
That at least is the working hypothesis for now until something better comes along. That's, that's, that's a, a case study in how science works, and that's every bit as important as saying, you know what, this sword, it's, a, it's an 18th century replica. Let's get, it. Let's, let's get on to the next one. Okay, we're going to take a real quick break, um, and when we come back, we will finish up our ideas on this. So stick around, and we will be right back. Jenny McNiven, host and diva of The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty, brings a witty, personal, and often musical view of archaeology. From personal experiences to just telling you about something she really loves, you'll always be informed and entertained. Listen to The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash struggle art. Let's get back to the show. And we are back with Ken and our special guest, Andy White. Andy, is there anything else about the sword that we haven't hit on that you really need to get off your chest? Oh, boy, I wasn't expecting that one. Um, <laughs> that you can get off your chest without worrying about getting sued. I'm always worried about getting sued. <laughs> you know what? Maybe someday I actually will get sued. So far, it's it's been... I don't think so. It's been, you know, threatened legal action, which... I mean, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a lowly assistant professor like i you know what I mean, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a lawyer come on like i'm sorry science. i don't know like i i would just uh you know what ken just said about duty responsibility science so on and so forth like i i think is really important the difference between pseudoscience and science in my opinion is having a mechanism for being able to prove something wrong right to falsify right, something right. Right. And I, I think that a lot of people don't understand that. And I think that we need to hit that over and over and over again. And one of Pulitzer's lines that he repeats is that archaeology is being replaced by science. Archaeology it is science. It boggles my mind because he does not understand what science actually is. To me and to a lot of other people, science is any kind of, of systematic way of producing knowledge that uh, you know builds on itself and is cumulative, and that involves a mechanism for determining what is wrong with your ideas. That's why you can have social science, and that's why you can have physical science, and that's why astronomy is a science, and so on and so forth. There's a way to test your explanations, and that is right. what is missing from pseudoscience. You just throw anything you want to, you know, throw a bunch of baloney at the wall and see what sticks, and that's. That's pseudoscience. There's no way to tell which of those explanations is more credible. You, you know, you just incorporate as much stuff as you want. There you go. Um, so I think it's really important as, as, as archaeologists for us to try to tell the public, uh, you know, here's how we know whether this explanation makes sense or not. Let's try to think of a way to test it, you know, to, to if this is true, you know, if, then, and, and then try to follow through on that. Right. And I, I think, like, what I have learned is that, you know, you can tell people something, but it's much more effective if you demonstrate it and if you are able to put something else in its place to replace kind of the paradigm that they already have. So yes, anybody can come up with a theory, you know, any explanation. And, and some of those might even be correct, you know, even if they came up completely out of nowhere. But my job as a prehistorian, an archaeologist, and somebody who deals, uh, you know, with material evidence of the past is to try to figure out which one of those we can discard and, and which ones we can't. And that's what I've tried to do with the Roman sword. Um, so fine. This is the first claim of Pulitzer that I have seen 
that actually has a piece of evidence attached to it, an, an artifact. Uh, this is a Roman sword. It is 100% confirmed. It came from a shipwreck. It is evidence of an ancient Roman visit to Nova Scotia. Okay, fine. I can deal with that. Like, that's something that, uh, you know, we can kind of sink our teeth into and go, okay, you know, is it a Roman sword? Where did it come from? How do we know that? Uh, right. What other explanations might account for this? And, and which of those can we throw out? You know, which of those can we prove cannot possibly be true? And, and how do we do that? That's a great exercise. So I think that's why, to me, like, this is fascinating. And I, I think the amount of interest that I have gotten and emails from people from out of the blue, you know, telling me that you're doing a good job or telling me, hey, I called this guy and asked him about it, you know, and I called a guy from Antiques Roadshow to see if he'd ever seen these things before. Uh, that's fascinating to me because it, it suggests that there are a lot of people out there who actually have legitimate questions and who are thinking about this and who are um, employing that kind of way of looking at explanations of the past, you know, whether or not they are professionals or not, and a lot of them are not. Um, but they are using that same kind of paradigm, and, and that's a really great thing. And I think we need to nurture that as uh, archaeologists rather than pretend it doesn't matter, because I think it does matter. You know, the past does matter. If we didn't think it was important, we wouldn't be studying it, and the rest of the world also thinks it's important. And um, there you go. I'll step off my soapbox now. Yeah, I, and I think it's important. I really like what you're doing on your blog specifically i'm actually kind of jealous that you can even do it where you're getting your hands on objects that are similar if not identical to the object that's being claimed to be an artifact you're you know you're putting your own money forward you're running tests you, you know you're getting into it you're getting your hands dirty i i'm really impressed with that i think it's fantastic um i wish i could do that Ooh. I wish I could do that with a lot of the stuff on my blog. That would be do it. You can do it. Oh man. If I could get hold of that genetic disc, man, I would be all over that thing. But the chances of that happening are pretty slim. So I don't know if you saw So I started a GoFundMe campaign, right? Yeah. I did. And I want your link to that so that I can put it up on the, the, the show notes because I want people to give you money so that you can blow this thing yeah, out of the water. Like, it actually does cost money, like to ship swords back and forth. You know? it's like <laughs> it cost me money to put some things in the SEM and it cost me money to buy this and to do that. And if you don't publish a paper on this when you're done with this, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. Andy. Oh, there's totally a paper, especially if I can get another sword. If I can get two of the brass bronze swords, which I'm working on getting the other one. Uh, or just get a piece of the actual, like, official one. Yeah, I, I'm not holding my breath on that. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Uh, I mean, it's really <laughs> interesting because, like, the people who have emailed me and said, you know, oh, I've actually talked to antique dealers and that sort of thing, like, they don't know what these things are either. So, I mean, you might actually learn something about, you know, something else interesting that was happening in Europe in the 1800s from these swords, too, as kind of a, uh, you know, ancillary kind of result of the analysis, I guess. But, um, yeah, I really think, you know, like engaging with the actual evidence, like this is, it's a big claim. It's a bold claim. There's it is. a piece of hardware that goes along with it. And now there's other stuff that's popping up that the claimant cannot control. And I think that's brilliant. And it's funny. And I love it. So <laughs> this is a very unique case. And I'd love to see stuff like this happen further in the future when other issues like this pop up. But this is a very unique case where there is the ability to challenge this guy while he is making the claim, not 100 or 50 years after the fact. 
And I love the fact that you have just taken that baton, stepped forward and like, I shall be the champion. I'm I'm cool with that. <laughs> and I love that other people are just out of nowhere supporting you on this because it's obviously something that has been bothering other people for a very, very long time. And, you know, the right person comes along with the right resources and the right access to the right things. And they recognize that and they're supporting you and getting this thing done. And I just I. I'm very impressed with the internet right now. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. There, there are actually smart people in the world. Like that's a really comforting thing to find out. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. So it, it, it's been great. Like, you know, not, uh, you know, it's, um, there are like some warm fuzzies and there are obviously like I get threatened with lawsuits and that sort of thing. But I, I know there's ugly. I know there's ugly out there, but it it's win. good that there's also the evidence will win. And you know what? The evidence if, will win. If somebody ever found a real Roman shipwreck and like a Roman site in the New World, hey, great! Like, wouldn't that be fantastic? But like, this would be amazing. Actually, this is not that's, it. So, that's no. that's that's one of the the real conceits of these folks is you know the fact that we don't want these we we try we're skeptics because we don't want these things to be true, and who who would be more excited about the discovery of a real Roman shipwreck? Off the coast of North America. That would be so awesome. That archaeologists are historians. That would be awesome. I mean, I've, I've got some some uh, biologists, zoologist friends who are who absolutely are skeptics about Bigfoot, but would be more excited than the guys on that silly show if it ever turned out that there really was a large bipedal hominid, hairy hominid, walking around in the the forests of of the American Northwest. Oh, it's that, it's not that we are congenitally against these incredibly significant or interesting claims. It's that we want proof. What, we want it to be ironclad is what we want. That's why we're constantly asking for proof. We want it to, if it is going to be real, we want it to be real beyond a doubt because we don't want it to at some point not be real. Because nothing's worse than having the rug pulled out from underneath you. Okay, and as we're talking, I have this, having just seen Star Wars, The Force Awakens, I have this image in my mind of of Andy as Obi Wan. Don't ruin it for Ken. Don't ruin it for I'm people. Not, Ken. No, no, no. But I, oh, I, this is Andy as Obi Wan saying to Pulitzer, "These are not the swords you're looking for." What's you're looking for? That's awesome. There you go. Uh, All right. Oh my. Uh, any last, very last comments, Ken? But the only bottom line here, and you've kind of answered this already, Andy. What's important about this? I mean, more important than is the sword real or not? What's important about the, what's going on right now in Swordgate? Why is this important to archaeologists or anybody interested in, in um, antiquity or history? Well, uh, I am kind of old-fashioned that I'm a processual archaeologist. I still consider myself that. And I think it's the process that's important here. I think that what you're witnessing is a uh, an evidence-based um, evaluation that's going on in real time. You know, which is not something you can go back and do with, with various hoaxes in the past and that sort of thing. So we're seeing this unfold, and there's a back and forth. I check and see what the advocates of the sword are saying every day, and I'm pretty sure that they are reading what I'm saying because they are threatening to sue me over it. So <laughs> it is happening in real time. I get emails every day. I, you know, I'm starting to talk to reporters and that sort of thing. So like being involved in this, this is the the battlefield of now and the battlefield of the future rather than the battlefield of the 1970s or the battlefield of the 1800s. So we're witnessing something different here. Right. And that's what I think is important. The outcome doesn't matter as much as uh, 
the process. I mean, either the artifact is real or it's not. I think it's not. If it turned out right, to be right. real, hey, great. Okay, I'm wrong. Yeah. fine. I can deal with that because I'm a scientist. But I think that the process uh, and the back and forth between claim and, and counterclaim is uh, what's going to be kind of the residue that's interesting that's left over from this story. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for a very good podcast. Thank Andy, thank you for being yeah, on the show yeah, again. Thank you, Andy. Uh, absolutely spectacular stuff. Thanks, guys. Nice talking to you. You're welcome. Good talking to you. trials as one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www dot archaeology podcast network dot com contact us at chris at archaeology podcast network dot com